0: Uh, Lord, just over our kids who are at camp right now, that you'll bless them as they are having a week thinking about you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And everybody in the room says, Amen. Amen. If we could just thank Wes for leading us in worship this morning and along with our band. Right now, as I mentioned in my prayer, our kids are at camp. I think we've got 12, 13 there. And uh, their leader of their group is Greg Baker. He's got two great guys assisting him. Uh, His job, he thought, when he walked in, was to take kids to camp. Last night, their camp pastor um, came down with food poisoning, and they texted me to ask if I could get there in two hours. And I said... Uh, no, I'm 45 minutes uh, I mean, it, they asked if I could get there in within 45 minutes, I said I'm two hours away, but Greg Baker can do it so, you know they didn't make him preach last night but I did get a text from him this morning that just said thanks a lot uh, jobs are weird I, I, yeah, I might want to text him and pray for him and Pray that he doesn't join BPF. Um, (laughs) One of my favorite memes that you see on uh, the interweb is when they tell you to explain your job in the most boring way possible. And I'm not sure how you would explain your job in the most boring way possible. I don't know what you consider to be a fun job, what you consider to be a boring job. I walked in uh, yesterday to our kitchen and, and Noli was shucking black-eyed peas. And the monotony of that, I mean that girl was consistent, but I was, that is boring. I looked up a list of the um, most boring jobs in the history of boring jobs. And here are some that were listed out. Uh, one is a frozen pea tester. That person tests the temperature of frozen peas on a production line. Uh, Another is a a bookmark string threader. The person who threads the strings through the end of a bookmark. Um, A printer paper feeder. The person who sits in front of the room and refills the paper tray when they run out of a jam and it runs out or jams. A lift operator, the person who opens the lift, greets you and presses the button for you. Very friendly, boring job. A a milk bottle squeezer, the person who squeezes all of the milk bottles to make sure that they are not leaking. This is my favorite. A pork scratching spotter, the person who makes sure that no hairy pork scratching make it into the package. A cheese slicer, that person slices cheese. A label sticker, the person who sticks labels on boxes and envelopes. When I started to think about explaining my job in the most boring way possible, I came up with this. I talk about seemingly abstract things and hope to make them tangible. When we get into the book of Malachi in chapter 1, we really did talk about how God loved the people of Israel and how he cared for them and had an affection for them and how their hearts were not postured to respond to his love, to respond to his affection. They missed it. And then when we get to chapter 2, what, what we see is we're continuing the story of the nation as a whole missing it. But there is a reason. There is a, an entry point that is causing them to miss the depths and the nature of God's love. And that is the group of people who were called the priests. So I'm going to read Malachi chapter 2 over us. And feel free to read along with me in your Bible. And I'm going to help us to understand what the job of the priest is afterward. Chapter 2. Therefore, this decree is for you, priests. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you for blessings. In fact, I've already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces. The waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. And then you will know that I sent you this decree, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and one of peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence. He revered me, and he stood in awe of my very name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction." You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of Armies. So in turn, I have made you despised. And I have humiliated before all the people because you you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. Don't all of you have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another? Profaning the covenant of our ancestors, Judah has acted treacherously. And a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offering to receive them gladly from your hands. And you, you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by God. Make them one and give them a portion of of spirit. What is the one seeking godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garments with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Again, when we look into the story of the people of Israel, they were given priests. And the priests really had three main things that they were called to do. Three jobs that they were supposed to accomplish. All three of these jobs making up their one overarching job. The priests were to teach the law, to burn incense, and to make sacrifice. Simple enough. Teach the law to the people, burn incense, make sacrifice. And when you look at the layout of how it would work out at this point in history, the prophets or a group of people, they receive the word of the Lord. They come down to the people with the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is what God says to his people. The priest takes that word is to teach the law by making that word of the Lord tangible. The priest is the one who brings the people up to God with sacrifice, saying, God, here is the best that we have to offer to your pure word that you have given us. This is how God would call these priests. He would say to them, I want you to declare, this, I want you to say to the people, this is the word of the Lord and how it affects your life when the prophet delivered it. So when we look at this text, we've got three things that are working here. We see in verses 1 through 3, there's consequence. In, in verses 4 through 9, we see a clarification as to what was taking place. And finally, in 10 through 16, there's confrontation. One more time. 1 through 3, we have consequence. In 4 through 9, we have clarification. And in 10 through 16, we have uh, confrontation. When we read through the book of Malachi, there are really six things happening. There are these six burdens that you see working throughout throughout this passage. Burden one comes in Malachi chapter 1, where God says, I have loved you, and the response of the people, as we discussed last week, is, well, how have you really loved us? Over and over, that's what he deals with with them. That sets the tone for everything. I have loved you. Well, really, how have you loved us, God? Uh, Burden number two, we dealt with a little bit last week, but we'll also get part of it this week. It's the idea that a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm your father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says the Lord of armies. To you priests who despise my name. How have we despised your name is the response of the priest at the end of chapter 1. When we look at the nation of Israel, let us be crystal clear. As clear as crystals can be. I assume they're clear. All of the people have dishonored God. But it gets specific for those who He left in charge. The people as a whole, the nation of Israel, the all of Judah that is, speak, that is symbolic of what Israel is at the time, each of them have dishonored the God of the Bible. They have dishonored the Lord of armies. They have dishonored Yahweh. They have dishonored the self-sufficient one. They have all dishonored him. But there's a certain group of people, a specific group of people, who have caused this to be what it is. All of them have dishonored God. But he is about to confront those whom he left in charge. Let's imagine that you leave your kids at the house with a sitter. And you give specific instructions as to what they're supposed to do. Let's imagine that I hire that sitter at our home. Hope and I are going to go on a, a rousing evening to fantastic places like Costco and H-E-B. We've left our children with a sitter. When we get home, we look around our house, and we have been giving the specific, given these specific instructions as to what should take place. They should eat their dinner. They should throw away their paper plates because we use paper plates sometimes. Don't judge. We are to make sure that they are in bed by seven thirty, that or eight thirty, or whatever age-appropriate time you may give to your child. When we get home, the sitter is sitting on the front porch and she or on the front porch and she is looking at her phone, which happens with sitters sometimes, and you really got to work through that. Uh, My 12-year-old is just, or 13-year-old is running around the house like a madman. My 10-year-old is playing video games, mesmerized by the PlayStation that we limit him to occasionally. My, My little girl is sprinting around her bedroom, alders on the back porch, smoking a cigar. I look around our house, and all that we have asked of our children, they're not doing All that we have expected of our children. Now, who are we frustrated with? Well, we're frustrated with every single one of them. You know your bedtime. You know you're supposed to brush your teeth. You know you're supposed to wash your hair. You know these things. But there was one person who was in charge. And that one person is going to be the entry point to our conversation. When God looks at the nation of Israel, they are, he's dealing with these priests who are to be the go-between, between him and them. He's given his word through the prophets. The word has been received through the, from the prophets. And God looks at these people, and they have undone everything that he has called them to do. They're offering up certain things. Last week we discussed their sacrifices. Lame sacrifices, not cool sacrifices, terrible sacrifices. And we look into this text today and we see that they are in the midst of practicing religion without really practicing religion. And he has this warning to the priests. And the key thing that we see in this text is God warns these priests is that these, we should be posturing our hearts in a way that says that we honor God. Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. Because here's the thing about this God that we keep meeting in the scriptures. He doesn't care anything about being anything other than Lord of all. He finds no satisfaction in being your kind of God sometimes. Yet we approach him regularly as if he is just kind of God sometimes. First thing that we see is the consequence. God uh, addresses them after all of the conversation about lame, blind animals in chapter 1. Verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 2. Therefore, this is the decree to the priest. This is what I have to say to you. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, I will send a curse among you. That's thick. I am about to curse you, and I will curse your blessings. Now, we are not, we use the word blessing in general for the most part. We are hashtag blessed, too blessed to be stressed. Our lives are wonderful. But when you look at the idea of cursing the blessings at this point in this of time in the scriptures, there's something that's happening. In the book of Numbers, Aaron is instructed to bless the people in the following way. He's instructed to say to the people, this is from the word of the Lord. You tell this. This is how you are to bless the Israelites. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may he be gracious to you. And may the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites and I will bless them. So God, when he says that he is going to curse their blessings, he is saying to these priests, you have taken for granted what I'm doing when I interact with these people. You have taken for granted what I've called you to say to these people. You have overlooked, you have have shortchanged what I am doing when I tell you to bless the people in this way. So what you're saying with these words, I am about to undo. The priests, they're taking for granted God's blessings because they have always received it. They are taking for granted the blessing of God, the one that they received and delivered, because it had always been there. At this point in history, we see God teaching these people and seeing that they have really not responded to him well. This is on the backside of 80 years of captivity. On the backside of that, he looks at this nation, very shortly removed from it, very Still fresh in their, in their new place as a country. In their new place as a land. And God sees that taught you nothing. That taught you absolutely nothing. They are taking for granted the blessings of God. The people, the priests, all together. You may say when you hear that, well, why would God undo his blessings for these people? Why would God renegotiate? God is not the one who renegotiates in this passage. The people of Israel renegotiate. So for those of us who read through this, we think, Man, Israel's terrible. Those priests are bad. Those people are just the worst. Those guys are the worst. And those guys are us. Continually renegotiating. Now, wait a second. I'm not a priest. You're definitely not a priest, Chad. When we move to the New Testament, which is where this is taking us, we are just moments away from a blank page. We see that those who would follow after God through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are declared to be a royal priesthood. And the idea of teaching law, burning incense. Offering sacrifice. We are called to that. We're called to that. It plays out a little differently. But we're called to that. Look, verse 3. Look, God says, I am going to rebuke your descendants. The word there is actually C. I'm going to rebuke those who are coming from you. And I will spread animal waste over your faces. Welcome to church. June the 13th of 2021. The waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. The waste, or or the word dung, your Bible may read dung. It's not just the idea of excrement, even though that's part of it. When the animals were slaughtered, this is all the waste and all the blood and everything that was uh, really evicted from the animal. So when God says this to these people, he is saying to them in effect... Look, I see all of the unclean things have been gotten rid of from these sacrifices. But those things which would make you unclean, I'm going to cover you with them. The ritual, the priest would have to sacrifice animals. They would have to cut out the internal internal unclean parts. They would have to carry them outside of the camp. They would have to burn them. They would have to wash their clothes. And then they would come back in one more time, just so you don't miss any of that. When the priest would go through the ritual of offering sacrifices, they would have to sacrifice the animals. Cut out the internal unclean parts. Carry those things outside of the camp. Burn them, wash them, wash and change their clothes, and then come back in. And God is saying all of that filth that you have to go through the process of getting rid of I'm going to cover you in it because you have taken for granted what it is that I do as your Yahweh as your Lord of hosts who let's not forget loves you you think that everything is taken care of because you went through the motions but I'm actually going to smear it across your faces why Has God given direction for how these people are supposed to be treated by their priests? Has God given direction for how the priests are supposed to treat one another and treat the people? Has God shown them this is the way this should be playing out? This is what it looks like, God says. If you're looking for clarification as to how the priests would function, the picture of that for the Old Testament priest was the person of Levi. Verse 4. Then you will know that I sinned so that, my covenant with, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and of peace. And I gave these to him. He called for reverence. And this priest revered me. And this priest stood in awe of my very name. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing wrong was found on the lips of Levi. He walked with me. He walked with me in peace. He walked with me in integrity. And he turned so many people away from their iniquity. He helped the people to see their sins. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should desire instruction from his mouth. Because he's the messenger of the Lord of armies. What God has established in his covenant relationship with Levi is what God ultimately desires to establish through Israel's relationship with the world. When people interact with someone who is a member of the royal priesthood, there should be something about the things that we say and the way that we act and the way that we interact with them that communicates that this God who we are locked in covenant with is worth our attention and our affection. The idea of interacting with a member of the priesthood should bring to mind what you see when you consider the idea of who Levi is in this passage and in the whole of the Old Testament. So if we're asking hard questions, and I'm assuming a Sunday morning in the middle of a summer is a great time to ask hard questions, would you say the interaction of non-believers and nominal believers, which more than likely are non-believers, would take them to see God in this way? Or do they get something short of that? The, word, the phrase guard knowledge there, it's used in the Proverbs as well. It means his lips should not let anything go out from them that is inconsistent with true knowledge and true wisdom. The words of our mouth should reflect the God who we worship with that mouth. Verse 8. But God, as he continues to clarify, he said, But when I look at you... On the other hand, you've turned away. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. Well, that seems bad. You have violated the covenant of Levi. Well, what are they doing that's so bad? I mean, they're just trying to get through. They're, they just, they're fresh out of captivity, trying to live their best Levitical lives. They were applying the laws of God differently to different people. They were offering leniency to the wealthy and getting a kickback in return. They were inconsistent in their communication of God who is always consistent. So I turned, so I in turn have made you despised and I made you humiliated before all the people. Because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. I think this is the hardest verse to even think about in this passage. In regard to practical application. God says, I'm not going to remove you from the priesthood. I'm going to expose you. But you're going to have to keep priesting. Not a verb, we made it one. I'm not going to take you away from your calling. But when everyone looks at you, they're going to see the farce that is your faith. God putting people on display who have treated him contemptibly. You don't have to look far See the number of people who have claimed a right relationship with Yah- with Yahweh that are living in the midst of wrongdoing. Who would claim that they would deliver the word of the Lord on Sunday mornings at conferences? Yet we're doing wicked, despisable things apart from Him. You don't have to look far to see the number of people who claim relationship with Yahweh. Who sit in chairs very much like you do. Who claim faithful conviction but live anything but. God is allowing them to serve and everyone sees it. That's exhausting. Everyone will know the contempt that you have for me. But remember, he's given them... He said, just turn from this. Turn from this. Turn from this. Stop doing this. What do you need to stop doing? What do you need to stop doing so that the people who you claim, who, you, who know that you walk with Yahweh, or claim to walk with Yahweh, what do you need to stop doing so that they will see that you are faithful to Him? What slander are we entering into? What gossip have we settled and satisfied ourselves with? What grumbling and complaining do we find on our lips? It's there. So if you realize it's there and you are exposed for that the the word that we use regularly is hypocrite. It means you're wearing a mask. So if you're doing those things, and if I'm doing those things, you and I should stop. Turn around. Go the other direction. God then confronts something in the nation of Israel that He is more than likely confronting in all of us, just in a more subversive sense, possibly. Don't all of us have one father, he says in verse 10. Did not one God create all of us? When then, why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously. The nation as a whole has acted treacherously. And a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves. And has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this. Whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is the one thing you do. You are covering the Lord's army with tears. You may use the phrase crocodile tears. Or you may think to yourself, you know, they're just... Making that up, that's not real. Or maybe you just can stare at your kid and go, yeah, that's, that's fake. You know the difference between real crying and not real crying? When, so yesterday, we get out of the car, and when we got out of the car, Charlie got out, and Alder was going to get out behind him. And Charlie was in a hurry to get to camp, And he shut the door on Alder's face. And that was pretty terrible. And Alder cried a real tear, like the real tears that you can't hear. Mamas and daddies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When they've got this that's what happened. That's real. But we know that sometimes tears aren't real. We know the whiny voice versus the real pain. God looks at the nation of Israel and he sees the the whininess rather than the real pain. He sees that they are unfaithful to one another. And faithlessness is tied to people. Faithlessness to people is tied directly to your faithfulness with God. Well, one pastor says it this way. Our orthodoxy, it's a big Bible concept, what we believe about God, and just so that we we're clear, how many of you guys have something you believe about God? Okay, great. Is either proven or disproven by our orthopraxy. That word is about your spiritual practice. The way we live and interact in Christian community with with Christian family and those who are not part of it. We're looking at the nation of Israel in this passage and they're talking about the idea of marriage here. And in this context, to marry was to display unity with God through unity with one another. So, the nation of Israel, when God looks at them, there are priests who are allowing men to leave their wives. There are priests who are allowing men to walk away from their wives, to have nothing to do with their wives. Wife's waiting for the priest on Valentine's Day. Wife's waiting for her husband on Valentine's Day. He doesn't show up. When he doesn't show up, he goes and he has a relationship with someone else. This relationship is wicked. And it is them unifying with those who worship foreign gods. This has nothing to do with the nationality or the race or the ethnicity of these people. It has to do with who they were in committed relationship with. And we have this intermingling of Yahweh worship with worship of the various other gods of their world. The problem with that comes down to, boils down to, God has said, I don't want to be Lord of your kind of God. I want to be Lord of everything. And you are doing abuse and you are mistreating your spouses for the sake of having these unhealthy, unethical relationships that do not reflect me in the least bit covering up the Lord's altar with tears you're acting like you're sad but there's nothing about your life that says you're sad you seem to be broken when you present yourselves to everyone else but there's no brokenness there you're running through the sham of fake religion mixed marriages in regard to religion in the Old Testament scriptures they always end in disaster if there is not a turn to Yahweh uh, think of Ruth. Like when Ruth took Yahweh as her God, God blessed that. The problem is the false belief that people are committed to. Verse fourteen. And why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness, has been a witness, you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. You have abused her. You have mistreated her. You have not cared for her. She was your marriage partner and she was the wife of your covenant. Did not God make them one and give them a portion of his spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. And then verse 16 repeats verse 15 with some some inclusion of different pronouns. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. If he mistreats, if he undoes the covenant he's made, there's this pledge that's made in covenant relationship. This pledge that's made in marriage. Devotion, care, companionship, protection, intimacy, peace, and justice. And God looks at these people and he says, that's not there. You were mistreating her. And if you're mistreating her, that's a full-scale reflection of your mistreatment of me. This is, verse 16 is the most, one of the most debated verses in the entirety of the Old Testament. It is translated in numerous ways. And I don't want us to short-sight the idea that there is discussion about this. Uh, one way that we famously translate this, that we take it, is that God hates divorce. And then we don't read the rest of it. So we just take these three words and we run with it. But there are other translations, and I want you to hear these, as to how this verse is treated. In the New International Version of the Bible, it says this, The man who hates and divorces his wife does violent to the one that he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. 2.16 in the ESV says this. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Again, confronting not the idea of divorce but for a person to mistreat and abuse his spouse. Verse 16 in the New Living Translation. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he explains why. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. CSB, which I use regularly. If he hates and divorces his wife, he covers his garment with injustice. God doesn't just hate divorce. He hates divorce because of why it's happening. Faithless people in this passage, walking away from the one they have entered into covenant with, which is a microcosm of walking away from the their covenant they made with Yahweh. And look, whenever you say divorce in 2021, 20, people begin to think, oh, this is awkward and uncomfortable. Look, you may even have a translation that reads, God hates divorce. But hear me say this. There's more to that verse, number one. And number two, just because we may see this to read that way, it does not mean that God hates the divorced person. It does not make you lesser. It does not make you someone that doesn't matter to Him. You matter to God. God may hate the idea of divorce when we translate it in that way. But God loves you. He loves you wholly. So we read through this passage and we get to the place. Okay, so we've got the nation of Israel and they evidently, they're terrible. They're lame people offering up lame offerings. What do we do? How do we answer this? How is God going to fix this? Because it seems the entire system is corrupt. How will the future of Israel be course corrected by Yahweh? How is God going to reset this priestly problem? Well, the whole book of Hebrews tells us that he's going to provide a better priest. How will the nation of Israel bear the burden of their corrupt offerings? The waste of that corruption and all of the uncleanliness that comes with it will be smeared on Jesus. And God's hatred for sin will be poured out on His perfect, sinless offering. How is God going to correct the broken line of Israel? In verse 4, when it says that that the descendant will be rebuked, this is promised one Jesus will be rebuked so that we can be in right relationship with God so that the whole world would be invited and enabled and empowered to interact with Yahweh in a way that bring glory and honor to Him so we look at this text and you see it somehow lands on Jesus which is where everything really should land So how are you or me going to respond to it? What do we do with this? If you'll remember, the job of the priest is to teach the law. Job one. With the best that we have, we teach the law. You burn incense and you make sacrifice. For us to teach the law means that we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength That's Jesus paraphrasing the book of Deuteronomy, which is the law. Where he will also go on to say, you teach it as you come and as you go. When you go to work, when you come home. When you get up, when you go to bed. Tie it everywhere you go. Make sure you've got reminders set to watch. Well, what about burning incense? I mean, I've got essential oils, but I don't know about burning incense. (laughs) My house smells like Thieves' Spray, but I don't know about that. Like that stuff, like big red everywhere. Paul would say that those who are in Jesus are the aroma of Christ in God among those whom are being saved and among those who are perishing. What about sacrifice? Because last time I checked I had not disemboweled a cow. In Romans Paul says brothers and sisters in view of the mercy of God. I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Because this is your spiritual act of worship. Malachi takes us to a place where we are to consider whole scale what God has done for us in Jesus. And to respond to that by teaching, living fragrant lives as we offer ourselves as sacrifices for the sake of Jesus to the world. What would it look like if we chose to do that? If we chose to live in that way? I invite you to bow your heads this morning. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus... On your own power, in your own power, you've been offering up um, sacrifices that were not enough. And to understand understand the whole of the blessing of God, that takes place through Jesus. Only through Jesus. So if you're here today and you would like to turn away from your sin, I want you to interact with Jesus... Jesus, who took the the full blunt of death upon Himself, Jesus who took sin upon Himself, Jesus who stood victoriously at His resurrection, and I want you to trust Him, Jesus. I need You. I need You to save me from my sin. If that's you, you would like to talk about that? I'm in the back, right hand corner of the room. Feel free to email us this week. Jesus, I need you to save me. If you're a believer in Christ, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength by turning away from taking Him for granted and present yourself as a living sacrifice which happens to be a fragrant aroma. If you would like to pray with me or be prayed for, again, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. Lord, we trust you and we thank you that you have given us a chance to meet with you this morning. I pray that today, through the power of your word and what it says, we will know you better and love you more. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.